Is the left over? Is it dead? Or is it merely dying? Maybe there's no left at all today. Or maybe the zombie left of today is continuous with the past. Was the left always bad? This is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe. Hi. George Hoare. I think I've been told to say yabba dabba do now, but hi. <laughs> yeah. And Alex Hokuli, who is myself. So George, you've been talking to two people who might help us answer these questions. Why don't you tell us? Yeah, ho- hopefully they will. Um, so yeah, I, I spoke with uh, Steve and Simon. So Steve Hall, Professor Emeritus of Social Science from the Northeast of England, and Simon Winlow, Professor of Social Science at Northumbria University. And uh, we talked through the themes, the arguments of their recent book, The Death of the Left, Why We Must Begin from the Beginning Again, which is out now with Policy Press. And there's an audiobook version coming soon. So listeners um, may be interested in picking up um, the episode 65 with Steve on the theory of ultra-realism in criminology and the rise of the far right in England. And also potentially uh, Stephen Simon's previous book, which is The Rise of the Right, English Nationalism and the Transformation of Working Class Politics. But uh, today on the, on this call, we talked about, yeah, is, is all the things that you said at the top there, Alex, is the left dead? If so, what are we going to do about it? And um, yeah, so some political economy thrown in there for good measure as well. So really excited to be speaking to Simon and Steve. The book is um, the book is is great, as I think um, both of my co-hosts can can attest, having written pre-publication endorsements. Yeah, so I mean, full disclosure, um, both Alex and I were um, saw the book uh, because we wrote pre-publication endorsements, as George says. And um, I have to say, though, you know, I disagree with. Um, I mean, I disagree with some of the conclusions that Steve and Simon reach. No doubt in my mind that they are, you know, kind of boldly tackling what is, you know, I mean, it's one of the kind of, it's the question that animates, has animated this podcast since we got going. And I mean, for that same reason, I think it's the question that um, is at the core perhaps of um, most, if not all of the problems confronting society at the moment, which is... You know, where is the left? What is the left? And is there a future for the left? And I think the other thing is that they, um, and this is not the only reason, but they have a lot of credibility um, to discuss precisely these issues of the relation of the left to the working class. What is even the left today? Um, because, you know, for, they've kind of been there, done that. They've um, personally experienced being part of the left uh through the 1970s onwards, that something that which is something that us as kind of millennials can only, you know, children of the end of history can only imaginatively mm-hmm. recreate. So I think that's important. No, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, been been there, uh, done that. Have they got the t-shirt or not? I, I you know, who knows? Who knows what the, the left t-shirt would even be? But um, yeah, no, a lot, a lot to talk obviously, about. Obviously, obviously, it would be the Bungacast T-shirt. Oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> sorry, missed the opportunity to uh, to promote to self promote there. But um, yeah, hopefully, listeners will get a lot out of this. Um, you know, as as I did from the book. Hi, Steve. Hi, Simon. Hello. Hello. 
So yeah, really looking forward to talking with you both this morning. Um, I guess the first question is, why did you want to write this book? Well, do you want to take that, Sam? Yes, I'll, I'll go first. I think I grew up in the city of Sunderland, and when I was young, the left had uh, a palpable presence in the community. I remember one time at school, there was a, a class discussion about politics, and everyone in their class was aligned with the left, or their parents was that were because we were still kids at that time. But a lot of them voiced, you know, familial connections to the left's institutions. The local party and the, of course the trade union movement was the predominant connection and it said there was a sense that the institutions of the left were for us and you know as I aged all of that stuff just vanished and the left disappeared hmm. and you know those connections the familial connections the institutions of the left withered and died and you know, as we got up, grew older, and I became a social scientist, it became increasingly obvious to me that the left had withdrawn from working class locations and no longer represented the left. And I think we start the book by actually seeing very clearly that for years now, decades even, we've wanted, we've waited for the left to make a turn and, you know, move forward, progressively forward and, and tackle the genuine problems that existed there. But it, it hasn't done that. And so slowly the kind of ideas started to emerge as we were in discussions about these issues. Uh, maybe it's not coming back. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's dead. And then those discussions kind of led to, you know, the historical investigation of the left's roots in Britain mostly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the possibilities for change. Yeah. No, I think it's um, it's a, a generational or, or maybe longer than that shift and that that comes through in the book as well steve where are you coming from in in writing this this book um on the death of the well, left well i was born in a mining village outside a steel town in county durham uh, some years before simon a few and um i remember attending what was then a state grammar school a scholarship to a grammar school and and the uh the class structure hit me in the face, you know, something I didn't really notice in, 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 in being, you know, when I was brought up as a, as a young child. But from the age of about 11, I realised that um, there were forces out there that um, were in some ways against me, you know. Um, it, was a, it was a difficult time at grammar school. Um, I was known as, you know, one of the thugs from Leadgate, one of the thugs from the Pit Village. But when I came through the, the school top of the class and all of the subjects, they, 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 the, 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 the hostility and resentment was, was, was quite palpable. You can't have a clever kid from Pit Village. That's impossible. So the sort of sense of entitlement and, and, and class that this, you know, legacy of the, of the old um, uh, uh, class system uh, from, from the 19th century um, was palpable. And then, of course, 1980, the Thatcherite government, having been in a year, closed down the steelworks in a town called Concert, which everyone's forgotten about in, in, in County Durham, and then proceeded to close down all of the, the, the pits. And, and, and um, uh, despite the fact that there was still 300 years of coal there, I know we're trying to come off coal and go green now, but at the time, it was a, th this was a whole... Mm community based around um, work and I thought to myself what sort of force would destroy a whole way of life 
and then lie about um, the possibilities of replacing those jobs in, a, in an unstable service industry, yeah, as employment yep. ratio. What, what sort of forces would do that or callous enough to do that? And um, I was I had a sort of a bit of a political dreamer throughout the 70s, but that, that really brought my politics down to earth. And I wanted to know exactly what we're up against. And uh, I was a musician at the time, and, and uh, I left the music industry uh, and, and became a social scientist. So when Simon and I met, we, we met at Durham University. Now Simon was a, um, at the time had just finished his PhD, and I'd been drafted in uh, to, to um, co-direct this this research project. I don't want to talk about it. it was, uh, that research project was we moved beyond that sort of stuff now. Um, and we met and we we decided that we had common interests and, and we wanted to explore. It was a case of what happened. Yeah, what happened to us? Why did this happen to yeah. us? And we wanted to know. The, the, the answers we were getting from Marxists, from feminists, from all sorts of positions weren't satisfying us. And we wanted to know, we wanted to dig deeper and so we started to explore this from what? I would say about from 1998, wasn't it, Simon, when we yeah. sort of started yeah. talking about this? Yeah, it's quite a long time ago now. Yeah. So it's a, in, in both the cases, it's a kind of a bit autobiographical, maybe, to the extent it's looking at this, um, you know, the changes and what what forces have, um, have, have driven these and what force has allowed this to happen, if you might say. Yeah. Like what, what the left uh, could have, could, should have done and, sure. and didn't end up doing. Where was the left? Where were you? That's mm. what we said. Where were you? You know, like a missing player when it fails to turn up for the game on Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. Where were you <laughs> when we Just needed you? You know, sulking at sulking at the side, like trying waiting for the ball to come straight to them and not not getting involved at all. Um, <laughs> that would be a, a probably a little bit um, <clears throat> generous, maybe even to, to the left. But anyway, so well, the, it's generous to idea... say they were actually on the field. I think it's generous mm. to say that they're actually on the field. I think they're standing at the sidelines, um, you know, um, waiting to be brought on as the prima donna at the, at the end of the game to score the final goal. Mm. So this idea, then, the the book, the the, the death of the left. Um, why we must begin from the beginning again what you know first first question to to kind of get into it is you know what what do you mean um when you say the left is the left is dead um what is the you know title of the book good place to start yeah um well the the left anyone who looks at leftist politics now and i'm talking not just about the mainstream political parties but across all aspects of leftist politics it's perfectly obvious that it no longer offers a compelling alternative to the existing order of things. It no longer promises to both living standards of the Mm. working class. It no longer promises to disempower the oligarchy. It no longer promises to address a whole range of real world uh, problems that concern ordinary people. Uh, The left's mainstream political parties are absolutely committed to the prevailing orthodoxies that bear down so heavily upon ordinary people. The Labour Party in Britain is as committed as to neoliberalism as the Tories are. Hmm. And so it, it, it isn't offering any conceivable alternative. And we're not saying the left has had a tough time. And if it changes direction and adopts these policies, it can come back to life. We're saying it's dead. It's gone. And the only way to hold on to what was once valuable in leftist politics 
is to start from scratch, to build from the ground up again, to create institutions that genuinely represent the interests of ordinary people. And this isn't, we're not talking about a mild reformism here. We're talking about a fundamental change needs to occur, just so that the left can once again offer that compelling alternative. Give people some hope, an opportunity, something to rally rally behind. Yeah. So just 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 to be clear, death death means no possibility of of resurrection. It's it's you know it's done done and dusted. There's no um, final like dramatic. Um, I don't know. Adrenaline to the heart wakes back up again. Is no, no, there's going to be no Tyson Fury moment of, of getting up after on the count of, of nine and a half and, and, and mm. assuming the fact it's not going to happen. I think the question, the first question that, that, that um, uh, came into our heads when we were discussing the death of the left, we were decided it's dead as far as we're concerned. From our perspective, it's dead. Um, has, has it ever been alive? What was it? So, you know, and, and that's what, occasioned us to, to, to go back into this uh, into history and look at it, uh, how it started, how it developed, and, and it's, its missteps. And I think um, then the missteps aren't just ideological. The missteps were in terms of policy, in terms of its, um, what it did um, to try to manage the, the capitalist economy, what it did when it tried to change the capitalist economy, provide an alternative. It's, its missteps have, have been quite calamitous. And um, because it's it, it trod that path towards uh, uh, where we are now, we can't see, you know, when 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 two lines diverge and, and they form a tangent. As time goes, they get further and further apart. You know, mm. and it's just too far away from the reality of everyone's lives now to to provide any useful service and to, to inspire anyone to um, partake in politics in order to um, construct an alternative model to this neoliberal capitalism that, that this seems to be falling apart at, at the moment. So, no, yeah, it, it's dead. Have a look at wh- wh- where it came from. Start yeah. again and try not to make those mistakes. So I guess in terms of where where things, where the left came from, the, that kind of period of social democracy in you know in britain in in western europe you might say do you think this i mean obviously this is part of the the story of the book but to to set it up a bit was this ever the an adequate platform for the sort of political economy that you know that the older left wanted what what is what's the diagnosis of that um kind of golden age of of um of social democracy of of a certain form of the left that you give in the book um well, I think that the, we, the problem with an, an awful lot of polit- political thinkers is they tend to have a static model of, of, of history. Um, there are periods in which things happen and that period changes and, and moves on into another one. We tend to look at it as a trajectory. So when we say um, we would like to go back to, to, to um, the social democratic moment in, in history. We're not saying we'd like to stay there. What we'd like to do is to go back to a crossroads, a conjuncture, where things could have been different, to rebuild the platform on which things go, not, not to stay on that platform like 
toad sitting on a rock in a stream, you know, and letting the waters go by, but but to move to a back to a point where things would would where different things would be possible, and different things, not just in the imagination, not just in the world of ideas and the world of culture, but in the world of hard economics, can we recover some sort of control, some sort of democratic control at the heart of the system, enough control to move to move in a different direction. So this idea that we want to go back, is, is, is we want to go back to go forward in another way. And we must, get, we must make that clear. So the answer is no, social democracy wasn't an answer. It was flawed. It was, um, in, in many ways, a, a lapdog of, of, of what we want to move um, beyond. But at the same time, it was a better platform than the one we have now. Yeah, no, I think that's nicely put. Go, go back, but not, but not stay there. Uh, Simon? Yeah, just to add that, you know, if we talk about in abstract terms, and usually we're talking about Keynesian economics, from around the kind of late 40s, it was dragged off course by private sector interests and you get the corruption of uh, you know that whole project there and it was uh, a series of half steps that were gradually taking us further away from what was once good about the basic social democratic platform and it was watering things down and gradually us take, taking us to the problems that we experienced during the 1970s so you know it, it could have been something we're looking back into history now and it could have been something very different but of course, it was dragged off course and it never became. I mean, we're not idealizing the 50s and 60s by any no. means. That's not at all. We're, you know, it could have been better. It, Steve's point is absolutely correct. And just to reiterate it, we, we would step, our plan would be, if we, if we had the opportunity to institute, to step back so that we can make a, a better, more progressive step forward. Yeah. Absolutely. So I guess the the question then comes straight after that. If if social democracy, in in your view, was this foundation or a platform for for moving moving forward, moving beyond it, what actually happened in like in historical reality? Why did this platform for the left crumble? Was it a political defeat? Was it a sellout? Was it um, uh, in, incredibly creative opponents who who managed to create a a set of hegemonic cultural signifiers and uh, get the working class behind their political project of neoliberalism or however you want to put it. That's not obviously the terms in, in the book. That's more Stuart Hall's analysis of, of Thatcherism or some elements of it. So yeah, what, what talk us through this a, a little bit. Why did the Western kind of post-war social democratic left abandon Keynesianism and basically allow, allow neoliberalism to, to come in? Well, the first thing to note uh, is that economic liberals, usually from the middle class, had been part of the British left from the outset. I think this yeah. is what we show quite clearly in the book that, you know, that broad church idea that caught on very early in the history of the British left meant that the forms of the left that were committed to material reality, committed to the welfare of those who suffered most were forced to accommodate uh, essentially middle-class liberals who saw the left as a series of uh, you know cause-based issues problems that needed to be addressed 
and the left would, you know, stamp out a problem here and stamp out a problem there, rather than seeing the left as a, a series of institutions that could transform reality in the inst- in, in the interests of the majority. And I think, you know, that gradually that those elements of the left grew in power. And the working class representatives who dominated in the trade union movement, especially the early Labour MPs, gradually were eased out as we move closer, you know, further into the post-war era. And there was always that accommodation, you know, about consideration about what freedom is. And I don't want to go into, you know, the various conceptions of freedom. But the idea of intervention became increasingly problematic for the British left. You know, they moved gradually closer to a negative conception of freedom and the state should get out of everybody's business in order to increase the sum total of freedom, Mm. freedom in British society. So there was always that opportunity that for the neoliberal lobby, and I don't want to kind of underestimate the power of the neoliberal lobby or how successful they were at kind of eroding the foundations of the organised left. But there was always that potential, you know, that, 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 you know, an alliance could be reached. And I think what we do in the book is try and kind of chart the history of this, you know, this growing alliance. And even in the more radical circle, the the left's great, Theorists, you know, the, from the post-war period onwards, they're increasingly libertarian and humanist in the Marxist tradition. And, uh, mm. you know, again, that, it was a perennial concern with abstract freedom and increased drift towards ideals, which is taking them further and further away from material reality. Mm. And I think this kind of opened the door for neoliberals who said that we can, you know, we can help people by giving them more freedom. And I think this is where kind of in the Labour Party, I mean, there's some actually some very useful books being written about the growth of neoliberal thinking in the Labour Party and how actually helping the people could be done by opening up new markets, which is very interesting stuff. And the key nodes developed in the Labour Party in the, some aspects of the trade union movement that, you know, maybe we should get rid of this kind of outdated kind of monolithic idea of the mm. state should become more active, we should become more mobile, we should take opportunities when they arise. And I think, you know, gradually this is moving us away from that kind of traditional state-centred model of social democracy and towards something else. That's right. and Absolutely. And just to add to that, I think that the left has always underestimated how clean the break was during the classical liberal enlightenment, the break between a managed economy and what the French physiocrats called laissez-faire, the separation of the economy from both the moral and the political um, institutions that that, that managed uh, societies. That Brad break was very very clean, and it was very very wide chasm uh, uh, opened, and 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 never the twain shall meet again. You know, it was the uh, the Fabians, for instance, who were very influential yeah. in the early Labour Party, were very keen to maintain that gap to let the economy be driven by individual. Uh, desires and innovation, market forces, all the stuff that the neoliberals have have canonised since the the 1970s. That was always the case. The left never got near the economy ever in in the West, Um, apart from a few policies by Roosevelt um, clipping the wings of the investment bankers and and state funding uh, a a, a job programme. 
uh, which were palliatives. There wasn't a, a direct control of the economy. After World War II, um, things changed a little bit, particularly in Britain when the state started nationalising what they called at the time the commanding heights of the economy. And that actually worked to some extent because 1945 to 1960, the UK experienced the highest growth in economic growth, GDP growth in its history. And um, job satisfaction, state earns related pensions, national health service. Let's not underestimate what we did in 1945. It was incredible. What we yeah. did in the 1960s was virtually nothing. The idea that the 60s was the radical generation is, is hippie nonsense. We, we changed the, the, we got closer to economic management. It, it was a quid pro quo arrangement, you know, the, 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 the private markets, uh, you know, handled some stuff and, and the state hand, uh, controlled other aspects. But, you know, energy and, and they were corporate and they were privatized it to, it, it, through the back door. We know all of these flaws. We like to say we don't want to go back to that. But that was a better platform from which to work. At least the idea that democratic input into the economy was possible. Uh, it wasn't demonized. It wasn't laughed out of court like it is nowadays. You know, it needed to be improved. We need to do things differently. We know that. But, the, you know, the, the left has never really got its hands on the economy uh, in order to manage it on behalf of the interests of the majority. It, it, it's, it's been, yeah. a, you know, almost a complete failure. And we have to work out mm. how we can have some feasible, workable, democratic input into an economy that's now global, you know, um, although that might not be global for very long. I'm sure we'll address that question a little later because it looks like the world economy is decoupling. Hmm. Um, to quote uh, Larry Fink, the the, the, um, the CEO of BlackRock Investment, you know, equity, um, it, it, that's going to change. But it, it we never got close. And, uh, and to keep on flogging this dead horse is just, stupid we're going nowhere so on that on on that sort of note how would you or how do you characterize in in the book the i guess the kind of you could you could put it this way there's been a recent sort of rebirth of social democracy at least in the uk and yeah. the us you had um corbyn and and sanders getting you know arguably cl pretty close to being um to being elected doesn't this sort of suggest that actually I don't know, maybe a diagnosis of the left being dead is a bit is a bit premature, that actually there's a lot of interest in the social democratic ideas and that potentially we could have, if things had gone differently, and there's a lot of accounts as to what these things, uh, that why, why it didn't happen, um, lots of blame to be apportioned. But if things had gone as, as planned, then we would have potentially had, you know, social democracy part two in the UK and the US. Um do you buy this or not? I mean, I think I know the answer, but I want to ask you anyway. No, I, I, we don't buy it. Um, let's let's. I mean, let's look at Corbyn. You know, I think he's a nice fella. Not for too long. <laughs> I think he's a nice fella. He's very idealistic, and he's stick to his guns. And there is a lot to admire. He's a, one of those genuine conviction politicians that people like Tony Blair try to copy from. And, you know, I believe that he hasn't wavered too much, but I believe that the Corbyn moment was not a, in any way reflective of a return to the founding principles of social democracy. I think, you know, 
he was John McDonald, I think, had a major role in the 2017, uh, you know, the manifesto there, which had lots of really good policies. But despite all of that, it's impossible for me to conclude anything other than Corbyn was a movement of left liberals, a movement of cultural liberals. And I don't think it's necessarily a critique of Corbyn himself, although he definitely is a kind of on the liberal side of things. But all those people around him, the people that rushed to join the Labour Party, were mostly university educated liberals concerned with not just economic inequality and the mismanagement of the economy. They were concerned with cultural injustice and wanting to right, you know, the the huge wrongs that are exhibited across British society today. And I think because of that, you know, it's it's impossible for me to conclude that even if we got over the line in 2017, and I have to be honest, I joined the Labour Party to vote for Corbyn in the hope that this could be, you know, the last breath we could actually resurrect the left. Uh, but I, I quickly dropped out of that movement precisely for those reasons, you know. So I talked to kind of local, local Labour Party people and, Jesus Christ, the level of class hostility, this is in the wake mm. of Brexit in 27, was disgusting. Yeah. that the white working class are xenophobes and racists just to trying to jettison the, the working class from the, 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 the left, trying to build a new left without the working class in it and that was it for me and I think, you know, if we if you any kind of objective analysis of the Corbyn moment uh, it's impossible to conclude that, you know, that it, it, it would have pushed towards cultural liberalism and consequently been immediately integrated into the rolling evolution of neoliberalism. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I know less about uh, Sanders in the States, but my conclusion is broadly similar. I don't think there would have been any significant economic changes. Look, I mean, that's the foundation of everyday life. You know, hmm. people have to be secure in their economic in their economic lives so they can build worthwhile relationships and families and, you know, be psychologically secure and emotionally secure where we can build, you know, reasonably organic cultural trends and whatever else. But if we haven't got economic security, then we've got really nothing. And yes. I think because of that, those the signs, the growth of left, left populism really, it, it petered out very quickly. And on the, growing realisation that these things weren't going to come to fruition and they weren't going to leave anywhere productive meant that we, you know, this was the last hurrah and I think we both got together after kind of 2017 <laughs> and thought, well, that's that's it, done and dusted. That's finished, yeah. It's Absolutely. a disavowal, yeah. Psychoanaly psychoanalysis. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, it suddenly came rushing back and we disavowed the fact that it was dead and we knew that it was dead long before 2017, actually. But then it became impossible for us to repress, and there it Absolutely. was right in front do, of us. And, and think, to, to, sorry, go on. no, go on, go on. Well, just to add a, a little, what Simon is saying, and I, I think it is absolutely right. It, it, it was gone. I think what what Corman and Sanders confronted, and what they, they try, were trying to, were two forces welling up from underground, which was uh, firstly the the sort of virtue signalling postmodern. Um, post-structuralist, um, professional, uh, managerial class, all trying to virtue signalling their way up the ladders of various institutions uh, in order to um, exert some sort of cultural 
um, rule over the rest of us. And also, the, the, the secondly, the populist current. Now, the, the, the populist current is the most difficult to deal with. You know, Alfred Lord Tennyson and his famous poem used the metaphor of the croc and, you know, this Norse legend of this this upsurge mm. of, 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 of headless dissent and, and a dissatisfaction that can go any uh, anyway. Um, and, and Corbyn and Sanders failed to deal with the populist upsurge, which was a thousand times more pop, powerful, potentially powerful than this, this sort of weak-minded virtue signaling, grifting sort of liberals trying to work their way up through the system. Hmm. Powerful force. Um, it, 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 populism is an incredibly powerful um, force, but they failed to, to, to get a hold of it. They, fa- they failed to grasp it and, and, and turn it, give it some direction, give it a head. And, and, and to turn it into a left way, the way that Brian did in the, with the American Populist Party. And Roosevelt was condemned as a populist, and so was Atlee and Bevan condemned as populists. That's, you know, what are people feeling? How are they feeling? They're feeling discontent. They're feeling very angry. That anger, oh, let's be honest, that can go in the direction of, 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 of uh, you know, hard right national populism is, is, is a monster and we don't want to go. But the, the force is there. There's nothing we can do to, to, to prevent it welling up every now and again. So we have to grasp it and turn it in the right direction. Corbyn failed to do that. Um, his um, uh, shadowed uh, Chancellor, John MacDonald, was economically illiterate. Um, Bill Mitchell, the Australian economist, the modern mm. theorist, who, one of the few people in, in, in the economics profession who um, understands how fiat currency systems work. I think some of the others do, but they pretend not to. Maybe I, I wouldn't know. That's a, that's a research project in, in itself. That one, the research project in the economics departments of the Western universities, would be something I'd love to do. But uh, I remember Bill was given a, an order, an audience with uh, McDonald. But McDonald gave him twenty minutes, and he was surrounded by his three advisors: the three amigos, Medway, Portes, and um, the other one, Oxford, Ren Lewis. And they simply deflected at, at Bill. You know, they they, they simply told McDonald that everything Bill Mitchell was saying was impossible. Hmm. And so um, Sanders had a relationship with um, Stephanie Kelton, another very good economist, uh, but it was a very half-hearted. And as soon as uh, as our advisors started to congregate around him, he started to um, um, put some distance between himself and, and Kelton's economics. So when it came to the crunch, when they – these angry people standing in front of them they had a chance to make a speech and say, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do with the economy to make it more secure, yeah. to make sure that people have a job, to make sure that your children have a bit of hope for the future, that you might be able to think about having children in the first place, how you might get away your house, the affordable house, and get out of the debt because the private debt, consumer debt in America was crazy at the time. You know, How can we do all this? It was all there if, if Sanders and Corbyn had the, the, the courage and the knowledge to put this forward to, to the American and the British people, but they didn't. And that was yeah. it. It was gone. That, that moment was gone. And I, I, I can't see that moment happening again organically. It, mm. it, it's not going to come again because the um, mass media, the neoliberal mass media and, and, and educational institutions are wise to, they've wised up to this thing again. They didn't mm. think populism was ever going to come back in, a, in that, that sort of, with that sort of force. And they noticed it, they've noted it, and, they, and they'll do something about it next time. So we're going to have to look another way. Mm. So, I mean, listeners interested in 
Bill Mitchell and some MMT stuff. We we had Bill as a, a guest on the podcast, and we've had a couple of other episodes on on this. I mean, before we move on to sort of where this all leaves us, I wanted to have a go at just and might be being a bit too crude, but just summarising sort of where you know, the, the story so far, the idea being that, you know, the left is dead and it kind of bought it on itself. You, you know, that that's not the way you guys put it, but it seems like that's the implication. The It was the <clears throat> turn towards culture and a focus on um, a specific understanding of liberty, um, culture, liberty, and so cultural liberals. These were also the, you know, the way to characterize this um, kind of supposed rebirth of social democracy in 2017. And again, maybe um, not, you know, drawing things out a bit further. This is when you guys sort of felt it <laughs> felt it necessary to start writing this sort of book. Was some interaction with the Corbyn project or some sort of observations on that, which suggested that any supposed rebirth of the left is just going to be um, thinly rebranded cultural liberals um, who don't have the working class in working class's interests at heart and in fact have a probably a bit of um um hostility towards towards them as well so is this is this um is this yeah. broadly well, I would, right I would, yeah i would add and they wouldn't know how to help how to help them even if they wanted to get into power which they don't anyway i mean we've we've, we've you know we've read books from the 1990s onwards saying how 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 to how to do politics without having power power is yeah. diffuse Old powers, they, they, they bought Foucault, didn't they? I mean, this might lead us on to a discussion of where the real rot set in, to, in the 1960s and 1970s with, with postmodernism and post-structuralism. They bought into this idea that, constant, that, that concentrated power isn't where we should, what we should be looking at, what we should be criticising, what we should be attempting to replace, this notion of diffuse power. So if this is the the kind of the, the, the rot, the... Um, the undermining of the, the foundation of social democracy to go to go beyond it if that's you know not not on offer now then what is wh- where are we now it's um i guess there's it's the death of the left as the title of the book that's probably going to have some more pessimistic um like parts of of the analysis but is there any is there anything positive to draw out of today i'm not saying like let's put on some rose tinted glasses and, and have a look yeah. at the, the world but how would yeah? How would you characterise the current moment? What are the the key aspects of that? Well, the, I mean, the the, the left is in total disarray as, as far as I understand it. I mean, there's been a slight resurgence of interest in the trade union movement, which is very good to see. But the left is fragmented, and there can't be any productive alliances between the fragments. And I don't want to get it talk about culture wars, but. Isn't it extraordinary the degree of animosity that has developed between these fragments? It's so quickly. Um, and mm. the thing about the, you know, we think about the left as a series of being fragmented, smashed into, a, you know, a, a, however many pieces. That whole class system is reproduced in each one of those fragments. And so, you know, the most, the leaders of, you know, the identitarian movements of various kinds tend also to be cultural liberals been to elite universities and all the rest of that. And, you know, what we're seeing here is not the kind of gradual cultural evolution and move, you know, into the future. We're seeing the recomposition of the subdominant elite, the people who are going to administer neoliberalism 
And I think, you know, across all the institutions, it's, you know, the university system, the media system, this is precisely what we're seeing. And, I, I, you know, all of this is occurring without significant democratic oversight, without any real political contestation, no external hmm. political opposition. And we're told that this is the fundamental political animosity is developing is on the cultural field these days. But actually what we're seeing is, isn't significant confrontation, political confrontation about culture. We're seeing the gradual recomposition, the reconstitution of the subdominant elite. So just just, just to, to just a, um, a quick follow up on that, what is the character of this this reconstituted um, subdominant elite? We often sometimes kind of talk about the PMC on this on this podcast, and some of the hosts um, who aren't on this call don't like this term. Um, in fact, probably both of the two of them are bored of me using it. So, you, you, in answering this question, you can talk about the PMC if you like, but you don't. You don't have to. But like, yeah, I mean, because I think there's there's something to this, and there's a lot of more recent class and material an- analyses which try and work out what are the changing kind of boundaries and and character of this absolutely subdominantly. Well, well, but yeah, what, who who are we talking about here, and what do they look like, and how how are things changed for this for this group? How do they function in reproductive well, to be, capitalism? To be crude, to be you know, and rather blunt, I mean, we're not here to entertain middle your middle class liberal listeners. We're we're, we're just here to, to to tell it how we think it is. And if they're bored with professional managerial class, well, tough luck, because it's I actually should, I should say that's tough, that's not the listeners. That's the um, that's the co-host, and you can be as rude as you like about. Oh, well, I'm always rude, but not I've not my announced. not the listeners. Not our, no, our oh, those two. Listeners. Oh, well, that one, those two. Well, they're not here <laughs> at the moment. I mean, Alex will be swanning it over somewhere and, 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 and yeah. uh, somewhere exotic at the moment. So I mean, he probably won't be listening anyway. But Alex and Phil, well. uh, if you don't like this concept, tough luck, Bonnie lad, because it's a good uh, it's a good concept, <laughs> and I think it it, it, it yes. does. Um, yeah, I know you'd like that, George, but it it it, it does. Um, you know. <laughs> a denotative term. It's it's a good it's a good category. I think we can look at the history of post structuralism, post modernism, and look at it from the ground rather than to to wrestle with its abstract concepts. What what happened? Nineteen sixty eight. Uh, the French thought they were going to have another revolution. Of course, it was it was a mild protest compared to to the original French Revolution. And um, a lot of the Maoists and, and, and Marxists went out into the um, Renault factories in the fields in 1968 to try and convince the, the French working class to um, join the new revolution and decided that uh, the working class were all um, drunken racists and sexists and that they didn't like them. So from that moment onwards, the working class was no longer the agent of history. The agent of history was anyone but the working class, anyone who opposed the working class because they saw the working class as conservatives to the bone, irredeemable conservatives. There's some truth in that. But then again, is, is conser- that, that sort of traditional conservatism, should that be a problem for a, a left based on economics? Maybe not, because as economies change, as, as real life changes, then culture changes. I, I don't believe culture drives life at all. I think culture is an adaptive mechanism. Hmm. So 
that, that was it. The working class were done. Um, the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation in the United States of America began to fund all social scientific research and, and also in the arts and humanities on about identity, about race, gender, and, uh, and um, eth ethnic groups and, and, and how they were uh, being discriminated against and, and, and how, you know, and, and um, Kimberly Crenshaw's notion of intersectionality sort of pulled all that together in the early 90s with one uh, one term. So it, it, the professional managerial class were born then because these people were being educated in a different way in the universities, moving up to, uh, through the system to see the cultural issues were most important. Nowhere in our book do we say that they're not important. Yeah, We're anti, We don't want to see any discrimination against anyone. But to offer to offer these groups something, you have to have your some sort of control of of the economy of material. What can you offer people? It's like the old Harbour Massian notion that you give someone a driving license, but they can't afford a car. Hmm. So you give people all of this freedom and freedom to do what you know. And 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 so what happens in all of the identitarian groups, the grifters start moving up the ladder, the new class ladder that exists amongst all these groups, and they start to get jobs in the institutions, education, mass media, and all the rest of them. And they become disciples, and they start spreading the world. They become proselytizers. And they, this carries on throughout the 80s. It's a, it's a way of having a career. It's, 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 on, it's the job description. You must now signal your virtue loudly, unequivocally, and you must do it more than the person sitting in the waiting room next to you who wants the job. And it's like a job. It's like an endless job interview. It's, it's, it's a job application. Yeah. That's, that's all identity politics. It's a job um, application. Job and applications they want to move. are competitive and absolutely, you know, pretty uh, absolutely. And then the essential, yeah. And then the essential column is I must signal my virtue on these whatever is the burning cultural issue of the day. If it's race, then I must be anti-racist. If gender makes a comeback, it must be gender. Or you were transphobe or you were turf. And, you know, these, these incredible hostile wars that are going on between these, these cultural groups. And now there's huge trouble in America between Asians and, 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 and African-Americans. Massive uh, hostility because we still live in this competitive individualist system with no sense of solidarity, which is what the old left was trying to build, a universal solidarity. That's that's gone. So in up they come through the institutions, it gets ever and more competitive, and there you are. And we have the professional managerial class born through the funding of the research and, and the movement through the institutions in the late 60s and early 70s. And it's now reached a crescendo. It's now every young middle-class graduate has to be part of this movement. Otherwise, they, they fail. And they're not, uh, they're not brought up to fail, oh, the middle classes. They're brought up to succeed. Mm. And they must succeed. And so they're seen from this hymn sheet. And they have to. I'm not sure how many believe in it. Do you know? I don't know. How do they believe in it? Mm. Or do they just, if, if, it, if it was removed, would the whole thing collapse? And would they, would they shift their allegiance somewhere else? I, I honestly it's, don't know. Because they're very, very good at avoiding being researched, the middle class. Oh, they don't like being researched. Hmm. I mean, so what's so what, what what would the idea be here that it, there's um, a set of ideas which are more of a a kind of a loyalty test than a than a set of um, of true beliefs? Yeah, it, it seems. I guess we we might we might see um, in time. Simon, do you, do you buy this um, uh, kind of model of? I guess it's a you know it's it is a kind of a class model of of I think of kind of political 
conflict today it might be a bit a little bit crude is there anything that you would sort of add to to what um you know to what what we're sort of developing here yeah i i think it's a viable concept it helps us to understand you know social processes but the fascinating thing to follow on from what steve was saying is you know the assumption is that these these changes are occurring in public institutions it's about education universities and all the rest of that the bbc but the fascinating thing the really indicative thing is just how much global corporations have caught onto it and you know absolutely bought into it and these massive titanic multinationals are now you know sending their managerial class off on uh, you know uh, retreats and uh, online training sessions about acknowledging their white supremacy and doing you know de- decolonizing their bookshelves and all the rest of that kind of thing while at the same time exploiting their low wage workers to the maximum amount allowed by the law to offshore offshoring production to developing countries polluting political systems making the most of lax labor laws and all the rest of that and what is the uh, you know, Steve mentioned BlackRock, even corporations associated with the mil- military industrial complex, as we used to call it now, you know, they're, they're, they're going through this process of, you know, in, trying as much as they can to make themselves open to the L- LGBT community. And, Absolutely. You know, it's just extraordinary. Mm. And, and they won't concede a single inch on issues of political economy, on issues of pay and conditions. All they will concede is... Your identity will allow you to move into uh, management, uh, the management strata of the corporation. Absolutely, I, I think Lockheed Martin are going to call their next fighter jet the F thirty six Virtuous. You know, it, it's going to be flying. It's going to be stealth aircraft yeah. that will bomb the bejesus mm. out, out, out of uh, Middle Eastern countries, and, and it's going to be produced by a company that is anti racist, anti sexist, anti homophobia. And wonder, so wonderfully virtuous, virtuous that you would never think that it made weapons of mass destruction. It's incredible how how how, how easily this was absorbed. I mean, Nancy Fraser mm. went through all this years ago, didn't she? She, she was completely ignored and, 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 and trashed for doing so. Well, she was um, the CIA recruitment video that that famous meme of um, you can see the the bombs dropping from planes with different kind of uh, stickers and different social kind of justice issues. But I'm I'm a bit aware that, you know, given the focus of, of of the book and the kind of the critique of too much focus on cultural issues and the importance of political economy, that some of my questions or some of my follow-ups may have been leading us too much towards kind of I don't think they're cultural issues, but maybe there's some aspects of that. And away from sort of discussion of, you know, yeah. questions of political economy. So I did want to move us on um, sure. to this because already, Steve, you, you mentioned um, about global decoupling and, you know, there's a there's a new context now for, uh, or maybe there is or maybe there isn't, but there's, you know, you could argue there's new context now for like, what you have to do to, mash, uh, to manage national economies and, you know, you could take the, the kind of the, the Blairite idea or the third way idea that it's all about just Respond, being a good sailor on the, the seas of, of globalization, but I think populist um, dissatisfaction with this uh, very disempowering approach suggests that there is a bit of hunger for something potentially a little bit different, a little bit more um, control yeah. of the economy. However, exactly you want to kind of unpack that. So, what what's this? How would you kind of characterize, or how in in the book it, do you sort of set the scene for this context of kind of 
the what is the well, environment in which we you know if we do want to manage national economies how what are the you know what's the situation in which this has to be done well i'll kick this one off and, 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 and firstly that the, there is a relationship to culture and ideology right um the, the current neoliberal um economic model is dominant across the western world it, she, of course, the Chinese adopted it to, to some extent, but then they married it to a, a, a you know state authority in the Chinese way. Putin's against it. The Indians are sort of wavering, and, and Modi's not a, 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 a paid-up neoliberal. Um, so that we could be seeing some sort of trading and economic arrangements um, and, uh, between these three giants and the rest of East Asia. And they're also trying to get Latin America on side, of course, you know, because there's huge su- supply and potential that, that that has, which is probably why we see so much American involvement in Latin America. It doesn't want Latin America going in with a, a BRICS. Now, Larry Fink, now Larry's, um, you know, he's not stupid. He's paid to do his job, and he controls over $20 trillion of, of, of capital investment equity in the world. So he has to get things right sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's sort of seeing this, unlike, um, you know, us sitting in universities, we get paid at the end of the month, and we get things completely wrong, which we've been doing for 60 years now. So that's yeah. pretty fair. Very true. So, you know, this could be a decoupling. They don't like us. They don't like our ways. The Ukraine war, is, is, is it could be a flashpoint of this decoupling. We don't know how things are going to work out there yet. Um, if, if this happens, the West is going to be left in a bit of a precarious situation because it's not exactly resource-rich. You know, there's the South America, Africa, uh, and Russia, or the, the, the big resource. And we've, we've still got Canada. I don't keep Canada on side because that's one of the few big resource suppliers. So to maintain this, maintain this, and to stop us and to keep us where we are on the neoliberal path, the, the, the um, neoliberals invented some wonderful scare stories, and this is where culture comes in. While all of the virtue signalling and the identitarian hostility is going on, um, <clears throat> which doesn't help the um, working class members of these identity groups one little bit, yeah. Um, while all this is going on, the standard scare story is being um, it, it, it is, it, it is being pushed in our faces by the media every day. It concerns the relationship between inflation and Nazism. Inflation is the big bogeyman. As right. soon as anyone suggests that a change control of the economy, which might involve public investment, what they call money printing, yeah, they, they will say this is inflationary. Inflation is the huge scare story. Two things to say about that. Inflation was conquered in Germany in 1925, and the Nazis got 2.8% of the vote three years later in 1928. Inflation didn't cause Nazism. Secondly, inflation Why? is easily controlled, yeah. easily controlled by expanding productivity, increasing taxes slightly, and changing the relationship between borrowers and lenders, and actually c- controlling interest rates, not not raising them as these morons do, and, and which causes unemployment, recession, and businesses reluctant to borrow and all the rest of it, but actually uh, doing it the, the opposite way. Stagflation in the 70s. So they have this massive scare story, and, and everyone, oh, it's going to cause inflation. We can't do anything because it will cause inflation. So the, the, yes, the first thing to do is cultural and ideological is to, is to quash this inflation scare story, and then to present uh, uh, feasible ways of managing the economy uh, yeah. in, 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 in national territories 
Um, and as Phil Mullen uh, suggested, a very good uh, economics writer, um, creating a systems of um, international cooperation between s- sovereign states. I think that's the only way forward because I think the EU, uh, if, if the EU would change, then I would go with the EU, but the EU, EU won't change. It's a neoliberal organisation controlled by the IMF and other supranational, supranational uh, global forces. It, it's not going to help us along that. We see it's all what happened to Greece, Ireland, etc. So there are feasible ways of yeah. doing it, but this scare story prevents anyone actually thinking seriously about it. So the the scare story, just to be clear, then is is inflation leads to um, kind of wheelbarrows full of full of money, um, and we've all seen these pictures, and then uh, inevitably fascism. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 question then maybe becomes what is how 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 do you combat this scare story? Because it seems like, you know, this, this could be, is, is it an economic story or is it a political story? It seems to kind of bridge, bridge the two. And we don't have, I think probably um, like a, a very like long list of economic stories, like in the sense of here's a, a, a way to kind of popularize these um, approaches to managing the economy. And this is partly because, it's been a very, from my view, it's been a very successful process of divorcing economic decision making from popular control, sure. increasingly making it technocratic. You know, if you want to have an opinion on this, you better understand X, Y, Z that you've you have to have a graduate degree in e- economics to do, or be yeah. you know be a banker or, or something like that. So I guess you know it's kind of a half formed thought here, maybe, but it seems like there's quite a lot of work to do to to reintroduce these questions as central to, to politics, given the whole and deliberate drift of the last 30 years, at least, has been to say, um, well, these questions of of economics, you know, inflation is a, is a technical issue. It's not a, it's not a political one. You know, let's leave this to the people who, who are employed specifically to do this. And we can just, you know, focus on the, the truly political questions, which are more on, on culture. So, I mean, is, is there any, I guess, any room for um, the left to, to take a distinctive or this, this, uh, whatever comes after the left, which is, you know, which is, we can go on to this is, is maybe described as left or maybe not. What's the position to kind of take a distinctive um, position on questions like money, inflation, all of these sorts of things? Well, isn't this the crux of the matter? The absence of, of, of genuine political antagonism at this crucial historical juncture. Yeah. The left have virtually nothing to say about decoupling, uh, nothing to say about how we can regenerate dead industrial regions, how we can give people a sound economic platform to build a life. And as we move into this next conjuncture, it'll be global oligarchs who define the terms of the transition. And it's, again, the absence of any significant leftist, probably leftist voice in that whole debate. And we're still crying and about, you know, we should rejoin the EU and we should open borders. And it's the absence of any kind of, genuine political antagonism rooted in an acknowledgement of the realities of political economy. And I think, you know, I mean, how can we turn it around? Jesus Christ, if if you look at the the Labour Party now, you know, aside from the absence of any authentic working class voices or anyone really concerned with the economic well-being of ordinary people, what you have is a bunch of people there who are deeply committed to the reproduction of the current status quo 
And I think even many elements of the radical left, you know, in my discipline, I, I kind of teach quite a bit of criminology and you've got BLM talking about we should get rid of the police, we should abolish prisons, we can't afford them. And these are mm. genuine radicals, you know, but they accept the fundaments of neoliberalism that we can't, that money's in scarce supply and we can't afford to do things. We can't afford to provide people with services. And it's, it's well, incredibly galling that we've been, we've allowed the left to kind of fall to this historical low point because just this, this is precisely the point where we need to take a forward step and start talking honestly to ordinary people about the reality of our economic system. The main political parties must engage in historical economic storytelling. This is how things work. Right back to basics. Get rid of the household analogy. Talk about the power of fiat currencies and what we what is achievable if we actually democratically take control of the economy and use the power of the economy to advance the interests of ordinary people. Absolutely. I mean, we we now have this this uh, ugly sight of neoliberal abolitionists. The neoliberal abolitionist is uh, is the chimera of the twenty first century. You know, it's two in, uh, incompatible from two incompatible positions. Um, you know, melded into one. It's awful. Uh, Simon's absolutely right. We need a new economic narrative. And that narrative must be comprehensible, must be understandable. We have to be able to put the technical stuff in terms that people can understand. What causes inflation? How much money can we spend? Where can we invest it? How much public investment can we have? What should be private? You don't want to, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've been to Cuba, you don't want to be sitting eating in state-run cafes, you know. You do need a private market in some. We need a mixed economy. We know that. We know that the central command economy in the Soviet Union didn't work. Goss plan, trying to work out what, what some, you you know, some twelve-year-old kid in Vladivostok wants for his wants for his lunch after his football mm. practice is just stupid. You know, from an, uh, an office in Moscow, you can't centrally control all market activity. Uh, Hayek realised that uh, very early, and part of his success was was pushing that narrative. But we need a more we need a sensible, feasible narrative about the big things, about energy, about housing, about wages, about costs, about prices. All of the things that we that the political economists is, and don't forget that. It was before, up, up until Polanyi, wasn't it? It was called political economy. There's no such thing as economics. It was called political economy. You couldn't have a Nobel Prize in economics because the discipline didn't exist. Mm. And that prize was invented by a Swedish bankers in 1969 to give to these the dismal scientists called we call economists. It has to start in universities and schools. We have to get this, this across that the narrative is wrong. It's a scare story. Even if it means bringing in our own scare story, what should we be really scared about? Austerity, recession, unemployment, headless populism. I'm not scared of populism, but I'm scared of headless populism. Yeah, populism mm. won't listen. What, what should we be scared? What should we be worried about? Is it global warming? Let's not sort of lionize freedom entirely freedom to do what are we freedom you know the old socratic classical notion of freedom are we free from our desires or are we free to to actually bring our desires uh, you know to fruition what is freedom let, let, let's stop talking nonsense about things until we actually work out what these categories mean and mm. set up some sort of feasible cultural narrative around an economically informed program. I mean, that's, I think that's the only hope we've got. I think what the MMT the, the people um, 
make the mistake is to think they can educate the world one seminar at a time and have 30 people in a room. It's not going to work. We, we, we need a cultural narrative first. We need to hook people into this and say, well, look, bad things are going to happen if we don't do this and good things can happen if we do this. So we need a, a complete fundamental change of the cultural narrative and our economic position. Hello, listener. Alex here. That's the end of the free show. If you want the rest of this interview, as well as our after party, where we'll pick out some of these themes, you'll have to join us over at patreon.com slash bungacast. We'd love to see you there. Also, if you've liked what you've heard so far, make sure to drop us a review wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about Bungacast. See you in a bit. Bye.